This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman, and I'm joined here. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we are here on Dollars and Change every Thursday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, which is 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific. And then we play during the week and available on the app. So it's a warm day here in Philadelphia, but we've got a cool show coming up. Um, our guest who will join us in just a minute is Aaron Siebert, uh, and he is the Social Impact Investment Officer at um, the Kresge Foundation. Um, and they're doing really interesting stuff around uh, opportunity zones and really doubling down on some urban areas, especially around Detroit. So that'll be a good discussion. It's relevant for some of the talk we've done around Philadelphia. Yeah, and for our listeners who aren't familiar with opportunity zones, we'll start at the very beginning. We'll make sure we break down the concept. Yep. It is something that I think is, is getting some buzz and political conversation. So if you don't know what opportunity zones are, and would like to stay tuned for that segment. We'll walk you all the way through it. So then let's get started with our guest. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hello, ladies. Hi, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? Good, good. Thank you so much. So I think that people, our listeners, may not know a lot about the uh, Kresge Foundation. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, the general purpose of the foundation. Sure. So the Kresge Foundation um, is creeping up on its 100-year anniversary. We're a privately endowed foundation, about $3.6 billion in assets headquartered in Metro Detroit. We have seven program areas uh, in our social investment practice. The seven program areas are education, arts and culture, human services, environment, health, our Detroit program, and our American Cities practice. That covers a lot of uh, ground. It does cover a lot of ground, and we were founded to promote human progress, and our current iteration of promoting human progress is to create opportunities for low-income people in America's cities. Great. Great. Yeah. And that certainly resonates with us. We've, you know, Philadelphia has many of the same challenges that Detroit has with um, great urban poverty levels and um, some growth in both, in both cities, in both areas, but still trying to figure out how you make it an inclusive economy is, is a real challenge for us. Yeah. And Aaron, before we get deep into the specifics of opportunity zones and that work, to have a charge like improving the lives of mm -hmm. people in urban communities is one of those, you know, you know, delightful challenges with no edges, right? Where does it start and where does it stop? Does it include schools and nutrition and water and, uh, you know, income and job creation? So how do you, you know, with that charge... You've got your seven areas, cover a huge breadth. How do you decide what you want to focus on or where the greatest opportunities for change lie? I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, and particularly in privately endowed foundations over a billion dollars, your life is mostly defined by the things that you choose not to take on. Mm -hmm. Because with that sort of asset base, there's a great deal that you can do, a great deal of good that you can do in the world. And what you know, we view as sort of the stewardship and responsibility of stewarding those kind of assets is to program them against the places where we feel like we can create the most change for the people that we serve. And I think Kresge, as a national foundation, has really a reputation for, for being innovative in places or uh, in urban centers uh, that need um, a focus on community development and mostly resident-led community development. I think that's where a lot of our brand is standing out. That plans, plays itself out, though, across some very particular program strategies. But what you will see um, across those program strategies is obviously a focus on 
communities that are underrepresented in power centers, folks that need voice in issues that bring a lot of um, you know, economic and social mobility to, to um, low-income communities, and then really sort of um, world-class thinking about the way cities can work for people. It's a lot of philanthropy speak that I sort of mm-hmm. just blended in there, but um, that's what we try to get at in the Foundation. Got it. Foundation. Can I ask the sort of counter question is, what does that Please. mean you say no to? Oh, what do we Puppies. say no to? Uh, <laughs> you know, um, so so obviously geographically we don't do anything in rural communities. Um, uh, we don't spend a lot of time in the foundation thinking about um, thinking about the sort of classic job creation drivers in in that that sort of top line economic growth. What we are really focused on are what are the things that lead to equitable outcomes in the sort of communities that we are serving. Um, you know, we, we don't fund a ton on the research side, uh, you know, classic academic research. What we tend to do is fund a lot of evaluation and piloting approaches that, again, have a disproportionate positive benefit to low-income folks. So, um, I mean, I could go on and on about the things that we don't do, but, you know, that's kind of our twist on how we um, – thread the needle with, with deciding on grant making and social investing. And this has been really helpful. I think we've sort of started very high level or diving down a little bit. Can you tell us something about some example that the foundation, some initiative they piloted or one that they're replicating, that the foundation really looked at and said, you know, our investment in this really made a difference. This is something that works. We're proud of it. It's really helping for that equitable development. Um, I can. You know, I guess... Um, Maybe outside of real estate development, one of the things I like to point to oftentimes is our education team because I think they have a very narrow but easily understood um, focus inside of their strategy. So they are solely concerned about access and success for in higher education for low-income students of color who are generally mm-hmm. speaking first generation. Right, right. You know, and, and we know there are proven strategies that, that, that particularly public institutions can employ that dramatically increase the, the access to higher ed for low-income students and, and even more importantly, get them through with, with a credential, right? And so, so we have been really at the for, forefront of that work nationally, I mean, we were one of the major funders that did um, some innovative work around, like, bringing the FAFSA forward to make it, you know, much more likely that low-income students were going to get access to federal student aid. You know, we have a really deep, close partnership with Georgia State University, who is best in class in the country about, um, you know, uh, minority student success, you know, by a factor of many, many, many. I mean, they're they're the, the standout. So, like, that's the kind of place where we think that if we can bring those those practices that are on the ground and, and, and scale them up nationally to other public bodies, we could dramatically improve the lives of low-income folks, in the, and particularly folks in urban centers. Um, and, and it's just a real good distinct example of, of the sort of way that we work with a broad scope and a narrow focus. Yeah, it's a great, great example and um, empowering story. I didn't know that about Georgia State's no. outstanding, you know, particularly outstanding performance there. When you are one, you know, one funder, one supporter of something like these initiatives to get the FAFSA more available and out and things like this, how do you measure your impact when you might be one of several funding partners sort of bringing a program or project to fruition? Yeah, you know, um, I do get this question a lot, and it, it is something that I had a different view of from the outside to now that I'm on the inside of philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think private foundations over a billion dollars, um, you know, typically have really really big eyes, right, as far as the kind of change that we want to take on. And I think it goes back to that stewardship and responsibility of the assets that, that we have and, the, and the sort of the ability to bring, you know, dollars to work on, on an issue. 
um, you know, we, we don't think as much about sort of grant dollars out, units of income back. And, and that's, you know, I think I find that oftentimes when I speak to MBA students at business school, it's very... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you can't yeah. be surprised by that question on Morgan <laughs> Business Radio. It's, it's absolutely natural to think about it from a transactional perspective. And that is the business school mindset. But, but large foundations, because we typically exist in perpetuity, we have an extraordinarily long view on the sort of social issues that we're trying to tackle. And I oftentimes like to point to the Ford Foundation and the work that they did, both in the domestic civil rights work, but also the work that they did in South Africa around apartheid, right? I mean, they funded that work for 40 years before they found change. And, and the individual grants in between, while meaningful, were not individually going to accomplish this really big goal, right, of, of bringing civil rights to the U.S. Or, or to ending apartheid in South Africa. But what they did was stack a body of work together and build relationships and empowering people over a very long time to achieve something that it's difficult to imagine anybody but private philanthropy having the staying power to stick with something. But it doesn't allow you to sort of measure, you know, grant out units of impact back. Right. It's I think just that's something different about larger foundations that is misunderstood at times. Right. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM channel 132. We were talking with Aaron, uh, Sarah, Aaron Siebert, Seibert, who is the social investment officer at the Kresge Foundation. And we're talking a little bit about how the foundation thinks about their role in investing and the areas of focus that they have. Yeah. And Aaron, I think that I think that's an inspired answer as much as, you know, the business school always wants the, you know, here's how we measure the ROI. Here's our dashboard. It's a very unique role that a $3.6 billion foundation can play in thinking about the long game and thinking about, you know, putting together a system of pieces that might help something over, you know, years or decades. And so I think it's a, you know, a fantastic acknowledgement of the power you have. Let's shift to opportunity yeah. zones and dig in a little bit there because our listeners are curious. How do you find define opportunity zones? And give us a little bit, Aaron, of the uh, the context you would set around the subject in this day and age. Sure. So, you know, as a bit of context, I have spent my entire career in community development finance, both from a nonprofit perspective. I uh, used to work in banking for mm-hmm. a number of years, and now in a private foundation. This is the only world that I know. Um, you know, my initial hot take on opportunity zones is openly skeptical Mm -hmm. about their value to the people that we care about. Um, I certainly recognize the fact that one of the largest problems, maybe the single largest problem in community development finance is the lack of flexible equity. We have many, many debt tools that of of course are inadequate to tackle the challenges that that we're trying to tackle, but, but they're there. Uh, The equity side of the fence has been a challenge perennially that we've mostly addressed with federal tax credits. And this is sort of a twist on it. So, um, you know, I think that the, that the approach to addressing the equity need is um, right. Um, what I am uh, pessimistic about is in its construction um, and, and whether or not the capital that is going to be deployed through this incentive, which you'll hear me say incentive, mm-hmm. this is not a program. Right. I can't say that in enough times. This is not a government program. This is bonus depreciation for low-income communities, and we have to treat it as such. So I think that, that it is, it is a, attempting to address something that is systemic, um, but is maybe not constructed in a way that I would have constructed it to create the benefit that I think we need. To well, that about. goes to the, the interesting point, and, and you opened the door on that. What changes would you have made in the, the legislation or the, you know, the policy to make Opportunity Zones something that you are um, less skeptical about? Because I know your skepticism is shared by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I want to acknowledge the fact that, that, the, that the incentive that we have today is not the incentive that was put forward by Senators Booker and Representative Scott, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and as part of the tax negotiations and the sort of bird rule debacle and the tax bill sort of in the late hours, a lot of the transparency um, was stripped mm-hmm. away from, from the incentive. So I want to acknowledge that. You know, I think from a, from a high level, the thing that is most concerning to me is the lack of transparency and accountability in this you know, th- this is an incentive that, that is built around the idea that we have great and growing economic inequality in this country and that the lack of capital is a significant contributing factor to that problem. Very plausible, yes. Yep. Um, you know, but I think where we get into some wishy-washy logic here is that the thing that is causing the problem is the thing that's going to fix the problem, right? And so the, the false equivalency that is derived from this incentive is that less money is causing hor- harm, so more, more money, money. Is, going to, is going to be good, right? And, you know, again, having worked in this sector for my entire career, if that were true, we'd all be screaming for more subprime lending in our low-income <laughs> communities. Because, we, I mean, we moved billions of dollars through low-income communities prior to the recession through subprime lending. But nobody's asking for that. Right. Right. So the kind of capital that shows up in, the, in our communities and the people who need that capital, that, that, the type of capital matters dramatically. And this bill is completely agnostic on the way that that capital shows up other then it must be invested for 10 years if you want the full benefit, and it must be equity. And that's troubling to me. I also have a huge problem with the fact that we will never know what opportunity funds are registered, where they are, mm-hmm. where they are working, where are they raising capital from, and we will never have transaction-level data so long as the reporting is on the tax form. I know. A separate reporting structure. I know. that that That's incredible, and I think a lot of people are – that's sometimes their third level concern once about, you know, where this areas they've chosen, was this the kind of funding, and then just recognizing that there's just really no way to know where these investments went. Yeah. Right? And as researchers, it's particularly troubling, not only <laughs> in the equity, but in the fact that, you know, we are very limited in what we will learn then. Right. Besides what is, you know, publicly, you know, shared, and even then it's not validated because it's not a tax form or something like this. So we won't even know what works, you know, and, and what the sort of successes of these objectives are and the types of financing. So we certainly hear you on that, Aaron. So Cressy's still working um, in the Opportunity Zone area, right? We are. Yeah. So what are you doing to um, – what kind of strategies are you using to sort of push for um, – impact in the ways in the ways that you want and to the people who need it so that it is you know you're pushing for some level of accountability and transparency um we're taking a few different approaches um so you know we put out this loi in partnership with the rockefeller foundation to solicit um proposals from emerging fund managers who wanted to raise capital um you know from that we've learned a few things we learned that you know 70% 70% of those applicants were really doing this as a model for subsidy, mm-hmm. um, you know, to bring subsidized capital into the communities that they served. And so we thought that was interesting. Um, we, we created an incubator in partnership with the law firm Holland and Knight, the accounting firm Plant Moran, and then Calvert um, Impact Capital. And they created an incubator to help incubate these emerging fund managers. We selected five. We provided them grant funding to pay for, you know, a very fine law firm, a very fine accounting firm, get them to a fund model, get them to a private placement memorandum, and give them all the resources that they that a 
typical private fund manager would need to successfully raise capital. We wanted to put them on equal footing mm-hmm. with the sort of private sector. I think, you know, probably 20% of those, maybe one, maybe two, will come out of that incubator and go to market. And I think, you know, that's a data point for evaluation in and of itself. And then secondarily, most of those managers were building, again, as I say, on a subsidy model. So we will learn whether or not if they go into the market with all of the tools that a private fund manager would have, are they able to raise subsidized capital to deliver into the communities that they're trying to serve? And, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. But I think that's important to understand as a sector as to whether or not this is truly a tool for subsidy. And I love that you're sort of uh, you know, adding those wraparound additional, you know, services and supports that traditionally don't always accompany just the financing part. What of those have, have folks responded most to and said, this has been a game changer, or this is, you know, really, um, you know, accelerating things for us or making things stick in a different way than before? Well, I think it's it's been, um, it depends on who you're asking. I, I think one of our managers who are particularly fond of Renaissance Equity Partners is a minority-led fund manager who's focusing uh, their efforts on funding development around HBCUs, which, mm-hmm. you know, is a nice tie-in with our education team. Um, you know, they're, they're going to be the, probably the one to spin out first, and we'll see if they're able to capitalize. Um, you know, we did take another approach where uh, we, we had a number of applicants that were sort of large global corporate banks and really big established private sector managers, and we took a different approach with them because they didn't need those sort of TA resources. But what we did was use our balance sheet to de-risk those funds to give them um, a better risk return profile as compared to their peers. And in exchange for de-risking their funds, we're going to get hard covenants in their fund agreements that require them to report and disclose and gather data around all those data points that that we're not going to get from the private market. And that's the trade we tried to make with sort of the large private sector folks. And I think they're going to raise $800 or so. Um, between the two funds that were sponsored, and I think you know they would they would answer the question differently, right? It's more about the reputation umbrella that maybe we're providing, and the de-risking, and the thought partnership that we're providing, which is sort of different from a renaissance. We're you know we're trying to address kind of both ends of the barbell market. Yeah, well, and the the uh, approach of taking a covenant, requiring a covenant from from your um, the folks that you're lending money to, is I think really interesting because we've one of our we've done some research around this, and one of our professors wrote a a, um, a paper on basically the contracts of, with a lot of the social impact funds, et cetera. And you know, clearly, the more people are pushing for these kinds of required covenants, I think the more likely it is that you will at least be able to track and see what they're doing. You know, it'll make it clear, this is this is what we want you to do. Was it a hard sell? Um, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had, we had five large private fund managers um, that we were negotiating with. Two of them, you know, basically told me to go to hell and that they, you know, don't need our money for, for what we were demanding. Um, you know, we ended up with two. Uh, it's really for them about sort of cost of capital and risk return, right, mm-hmm. just as it is for their investors. So how burdensome are the uh, requirements that we're putting on the funds? 
versus what is the value that we're bringing to the table between sort of reputation risk, shielding, and balance sheet protection and that sort of thing. It's been a negotiation. We're very pleased with the partners that we have. We think they're good, honest operators and folks that we align with well, but that's absolutely true. And, you know, I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm measured in what I think the sort of scalability of this is. If what we are talking about is philanthropies and other sort of concessionary sources of capital have to step into this marketplace to extract base level accountability reporting and sort of like do no harm covenants, then, then I think we are in really rough shape in this sector. And I would question the value, the incremental value that Opportunity Zones are providing, because that is a very finite source of capital. And while we're happy to like step into the field and put our money where our mouth is and generate some data, you know, we are a drop in the bucket compared to the sort of scalability of this marketplace. And I don't want 5% of the market who is trying to do good to greenwash the 95% of the market that mm. doesn't care or, or, you know, is ambivalent on that point. So I want us to all be very clear-eyed on that, on that sort of distinction. Right. And I can't imagine, you know, Kresge money was what Opportunity Zones were hoping to convince to invest, right? Like, that money already shows up to these parties. Um, And so that certainly can't be the 5% that, you know, you feel is doing the right thing for the right reasons. Um, Because we never had any doubts about that funding doing the right thing. So what's, what, what is a kind of new and exciting with Kresge Foundation and, and your role beyond, you know, trying to figure out how to make opportunity zones and this kind of capital go to where it needs to go? Well, so, you know, we, we, um, I'll maybe sort of try to wrap up on the opportunities on work and tie it into some other things that we're doing. You know, at this point, you know, we are evolving more and trying to support um, communities and states and local governments with tools to sort of prepare them to take advantage of this sort of funding as well as give them the ammunition that they need to play defensively mm-hmm. where, where, where opportunities on capital could distort market um, you know, the way that markets work in individual cities and, and create problems for local priorities. We're also working with some other funders to, to pull together some capital uh, to fund investigative journalism around this issue. And I will say, I think, you know, the best thing that I have done in my three and a half years in philanthropy at this point is we've presented at the national um, uh, editors and journal journalists of uh, – yeah, I, I'm sorry, I'm butchering it. It's the Investigative Reporters and Editors Conference in Houston, Ooh. which is, you know, I think 1,300 reporters or something like that and editors from around the country and give a very robust discussion about Opportunity Zones and why they matter to local communities. I mean, it was standing room only. There's an organized listserv now of, of reporters around the country who are wanting to write and investigate this topic. And we think that's really important, right, in the absence of transparency at the federal level, journalism locally in particular is the best firewall we have to make sure that people, you know, take a beat before they invest in something that may harm the folks that it's intending to help. Yeah, and that's a really fascinating strategy because I think um, investigative reporting is is being challenged a lot. Um, and yet, if there's no other way to get that information, we need we need people to sort of dig it up and be independent and present information so that we all know what's going on, right? We have to have some sense around that. Yeah. Aaron, in the last couple of minutes on that subject, what would you suggest to listeners if they see, you know, if, if they're reading their local paper and they're seeing, you know, some Opportunity Zone investment you know, what What do you encourage them to look for to sort of sniff test it and understand the power of its impact and if it is, you know, 
well-intentioned and, you know, doing what it intends to do. Because I think a lot of times you see this and you think, oh, you know, I've been told that's a good thing and I see the headlines. So what are a couple of questions or things people should look for or ask? Um, you know, I, I start back with my premise around um, uh, transparency, accountability. You know, from, from my experience, nothing good grows in the dark, and particularly when it is focused at low-income people and in low-income communities. So if you're presented an opportunity fund investment that has no um, desire to, to track any sort of project-level outcomes or impacts, is um, quiet in its fundraising strategy, is exploiting inefficiencies in a, in a local market, um, you know, I, I certainly would never invest in a vehicle like that, and I would hope others would not. Um, I would also look for alignment with local strategies, right? While, while capital does flow globally, problems are inherently local. And, and cities, states, and public sector, social sector have, have been working in, in every single opportunity zone track that was designated. There is somebody working in that community who knows the needs of the people there, who knows what the capital barriers are. And, and there's some alignment that can be had with these funds. And I, I would argue that it is in the best economic interest of any opportunity fund and investor to align with those local priorities because running contrary to local priorities in the short term may generate yield, but in the long term, which this capital is incentivized to be there for at least 10 years, um, are better served where there is local alignment. So questioning of opportunity fund manager or promoter about local alignment and local priorities and how you know, a given development or a business investment aligns with those priorities, it, it should be you know, very high on the list. And do you think, um, and, and again, stretching the discussion just a little bit, the, the local priorities, are they often clear enough and or... Um, limited enough that it, it sort of makes it possible for you, for a funder or an investor to, to find that alignment? Or is it often a kind of improve need, our community? We need this, yeah. we need this, we need this, we need this. Yeah, you know, I, um, I, I am somewhat sympathetic to that concern. Um, although what I will say is, you know, the private market operating as it does, um, you know, isn't built to sort of be on the ground in every place and understand those individual strategies. But I get a little indignant with the idea that low-income communities are supposed to contort themselves mm -hmm. to the whims of a private market to attract the capital um, when you're using a federal government incentive that was ostensibly, you know, rationalized to serve low-income people and to address economic inequality. And I bristle a little bit to the idea that folks who are living in that reality have to somehow find a way to translate their own needs into what the quote-unquote market wants. I mean, that fundamentally seems odd to offensive, um, depending on the sort of situation. So I really think that if you're going to use a federal incentive, you have the obligation to figure out how it does serve the public purpose. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a great point because, I mean, too often I think there is the um, expectation of contorting oneself just a bit in order to fit with the funder and the investor, even if there's a, a real sense that this is not going to work as well mm -hmm. as if only I could tell you what I really need and you would give me that which I really need, yeah, right. right? And so I think that that kind of insight about how do we how do we be authentic in discovering what the community needs and working our funding to help make that happen. And I know we're working with some, I'm thinking about some of the folks we're working with um, here in Philadelphia, and 
pleased to say that they're very cognizant about how do we understand what the community needs are and not just sort of say, this is what we do and where can you fit us in, right? Yep, yep. And what are we going to measure? How often are we going to report that? How are you going to be able to see the progress of this over those 10 years and and so forth? Well, so uh, Aaron, in the last question, um, what advice would you, you know, we're we're here in Philadelphia, we're at the business school, we're we're thinking about how we can have real impact in, in Philadelphia in an urban area that, you know, resembles a lot of other urban areas with challenges. What quick piece of advice would you give my team? What should we be trying to do? Um, you know, I think that, that local context is everything, right? Understanding the needs uh, of local community and having a proven sort of strategy to address them is where we start. We don't start with a capital tool and, as we just discussed, contort ourselves to meet the needs of that capital tool, right? And so, you know, a thing that concerns me a lot right now is, that, you know, this is the Y2K of community and economic development, <laughs> yeah, right? right? I mean, everybody's talking about it and nobody knows if it, if it meets their needs or is a threat <laughs> to them. And I think that's just fundamentally wrong, right? Like, when you are working in community, you know the needs of Philadelphia or the people in Philadelphia know their needs. There's a strategy, I suspect, for virtually every a community there and and understanding the tools that are available is certainly important right because you have to put plan into action but never ever lead with the capital tool right if, if we lead with the capital tool then we are serving the interests of the investor community and not serving the interests of the folks that this is actually meant to address and I, I think keeping rooted in that principle is is hard because we chase the money but is is necessary. And that is, I think, an excellent way to close out this segment. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Aaron, uh, Aaron Seibert, the Social Investment Officer at Kresge Foundation. Be back soon. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.